Signal Sciences secures the most important web applications, APIs, and microservices of the world's leading companies, protecting over 7,500 applications and 150 billion production requests per week. Signal Sciences NextGen WAF and RASP help companies increase security and maintain site reliability without sacrificing velocity, all at the lowest total cost of ownership. Signal Sciences patented technology protects any application against any attack with integrations into any DevOps toolchain. Signal Sciences, demand more from your WAF. Learn more at securityweekly.com forward slash signal sciences. Detect security threats in minutes before it affects your customers with Datadog's newest security monitoring product. Teams can investigate security threats and malicious activity in real time using 75 plus out of the box detection rules and detailed observability data, metrics, traces, and logs in one integrated platform. See it for yourself by signing up for a free trial and receive a Datadog t-shirt by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Datadog. By connecting to your code repository, Actrix generates a topology across your full stack to reveal risks so that you can harden your architecture. It also scans code for violations against compliance and security standards to enforce best practices. In addition, Actrix develops threat models using vulnerability feeds, IAM privileges, and other data to predict potential breach paths. Learn how easy it is to get started with Accurix at securityweekly.com forward slash Accurix. Welcome back to Application Security Weekly. I'm your host, Mike Shima, joined by Matt Alderman and John Kinsella. Security Weekly is ramping up our webcast and tra technical training schedule for the rest of 2020. In September, you can learn how to extend the enterprise network for remote workers and protect your home network. You can also find out why traditional data security can't be zero trust, and you can learn how to reduce the blast radius of your cloud infrastructure. Visit securityweekly.com slash webcast to see what we have coming up, or visit securityweekly.com slash on demand to view our previously recorded webcasts. And that brings us to the news. And speaking of visibility, I know, John, you always have your eye out for uh, container security and, and uh, Docker escapes. And I think you've caught one for uh, th this past week that you'd like to uh, share with us. I do. And speaking of visibility, I didn't mean to be quiet on that last segment. I just really enjoyed the conversation, so I'll let you guys go. Um, yeah, this is one of my I, – I, I found this one a week ago, and, and folks who have worked with me or customers who work with me know how much this type of thing really irks me. Uh, so there's a blog post from uh, – looks like a pen tester, Red Timmy. I haven't heard of them before. Um, but long story short, they were working with a customer – who had decided that they want to they're going to try and use docker sockets inside docker containers which is a horrible idea and and the rant for folks who haven't heard me i must have done this on here before but um uh, the default way of using jenkins for doing ci builds wants to do what's called docker and docker which basically means you put the docker socket for the engine inside a container and then let that container control docker and spin up other containers um, the reason this is horrible is because there's absolutely zero security on it. There was no security in the design. They just left there's a nice open thing. And I think there's a um, there's an API. I think Twistlock has a proxy to put on there to try and secure it. But um, it, all you need to do is compromise that container, and you've, you've compromised everything on that host. This is where a lot of the uh, um, the miners start working through if they're able to get into a container that, that has that in there or if someone leaves just a Docker socket on a TCP socket. It's it's a Unix socket by default. It's it's just it's this is something you want to use as little as possible and keep it as secure as possible over in a corner. This is partially why um, 
uh, Red Hat and and Google have come out with ways of of doing both container builds as well as running uh, containers without having a socket exposed like this. It it it's you can sense it's not really a great thing. And I've had I've had really significant fights with very large customers before about you don't want to be doing this um, at Qualys, and and they wanted to do it, and you know I was. I was dragged kicking and screaming, and we eventually supported it. But uh, um, it, it's really you're setting yourself up for failure. Anyways, this blog post, um, this particular customer, whoever it was behind this, uh, they decided to write their own proxy on that socket. So the idea being, hey, if if we control what that Docker engine is able to do, so we say, you know, um, don't start containers or you know, don't mount certain things. Because uh, basically, the use case is if you run a container and as a mount point, you mount the root volume of the host instance. I'm now able to modify password files. I'm able to start and stop services. I'm able to do whatever, really whatever I want, right? So that's how the exposure is, or part of the exposure uh, uh, platform. And I know Matt's over there somewhere nodding with me because don't run this route. Um, oh, no route, yes. <laughs> I've but, been waiting for a break. <laughs> but so, so basically what these guys with this proxy decided to do is, okay, we're going to figure out all those things which you're not supposed to do, and, and we're going to blacklist those um, so that only certain things can be run in this container. Sound familiar to people? Um, and so the pen tester got in there and they started playing. And it's sort of, it's a decent blog post because he starts talking through, you know, we've obviously been um, in tune this year with blog posts that um, they sort of walk through how we think about this type of thing, right? So you 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 start and you see like, okay, there's my basic example, mounting a volume, that works. Okay, let me try to mount the root volume and that didn't work so it tries different ways and he starts screwing around he eventually figures out a way to be able to write to the root volume and once you've got that you've, you've got the box right so um that's the blog post but the story behind this is you know as with crypto software writing your own security software um you know this is you know mike and us we've been talking about threat modeling recently this is again an example of that of um not really threat modeling right but actually sort of whiteboarding or thinking through all the various examples of how could this be used in a bad way and then making sure your software actually catches that can be pretty difficult huh so um that that's sort of the the case around this uh you know you don't have to very very seldom can you actually really justify using docker and docker um there's just really other ways of doing this um, if, if you're going to write this yourself don't blacklist whitelist allow through just the very specific things you want to do um, but, but that's sort of the blog post in, in my rant and I'll, I'll take a step back if you guys have thoughts about it. Uh, I, I, I liked it too. And the thing that stood out to me is that, uh, yes, I, I love these types of blog posts that give sort of that attacker's mindset of here was my end goal and here were a couple steps to get there, including, um, false starts. You know, I tried this and it failed, so I'll try this and it failed. So listeners, if you have other examples that you'd like to share with us to highlight, we'd love to hear it. And the other thing I liked about this one in particular is that the bypass here wasn't a type of injection attack. It wasn't my, sadly, it wasn't a path traversal dealing with sockets. It was more of the set composition of the reverse proxy. So they said, sure, we're going to have this allow list. They're only going to allow certain paths. But oops, we forgot to say we don't want to just allow only these things. And by the way, all these other uh, paths as well, like the slash to, to host, it should have been only allow what we've 
mandated is on this ex- uh, allow list and exclude all the others. So it's a good example, just what you were saying. If if you're going to implement a security control, you have to have some good robust testing around it too. And I also want to say that just some good normal acceptance testing, QA testing would have found incidentally this type of security bug. So it's a bit surprising that it comes out um, this late in the game, or I guess maybe unfortunate, I should say. Yeah, and you know, it's for folks curious about Docker, there's, there's, um, this is interesting from the point of view of, uh, there's some stuff in there I hadn't seen before in a previous blog post. So the, the Docker API is actually a HTTP API that goes either over a TCP socket or by default, like I said, Unix socket. Um, but they actually have some curl commands in here to show you how to do it, which I don't think I've seen that before. So um, usually when people start playing with this, they have to write a little bit of Go or Python or something to actually interact with that. But here's you know how to do it in, in curl. So I thought that was sort of neat. Um, but back to your point, Mike, Docker API is not simple, right? It's fairly complex um, and sort of similar to like, you know, if you try to create you know, here's a little experiment for, for the kids at home. Uh, try to create a regular expression to correctly identify a mail address, an email address. It's super <laughs> difficult. It's it's in the back of the um, wherever it is. It's in the back of the O'Reilly book for regex, right? It's it's, ac- it's really long to actually get it right. Um, and that's because email is complicated, even though it sounds so simple. You know, we were talking about DMARC recently. And it's sort of similar for, for this thing. Um, to actually whitelist this correctly, an API this complex is is a pretty good trick. So um, maybe fall back to you know our standard AppSec concept of don't allow people to specify what they want, but give them three or four choices and then build that for them um, would probably be a safe way to do this as well. Oh, absolutely. And I think there's additionally to to segue into other topics about trying to make sure people or developers do things a safe way. Um, we also have a another pretty nice write up about the attacker mindset, a little bit of methodology about a researcher who was basically just poking around GitHub and doing search dorks um, for, uh, in, in this case, a lot of health information. And their write up um, went through, I think it was about um, 10 different, nine or 10 different companies that they found various amounts of records from, but essentially boiled down to a combination of hard-coded credentials, hard-coded secrets, or then also just having some access to uh, source code, and in one case, finding a vuln within um, some PHP code, and in another case, finding some code that actually already had a web shell in it. So I think that also you know, speaks to that, what can we as a security, uh, security industry do to make it easier to manage credentials that are not hard-coded within source or give alternatives to doing so? Yeah, I mean, this is one of Paul's biggest, you know, nightmare scenarios, right? You leave a set of credentials embedded in your code because you're trying to authenticate to stuff, and then you push it up into your GitHub repository that happens to be publicly accessible, and then next thing you know, everybody's got your credentials. But that's exactly what they're talking about here, right? And so how many times does this happen? Obviously, a lot is not only are we leaving embedded credentials there, we're pushing them to repositories that could be public instead of private, and we're not forcing good authentication, like multi-factor authentication, to these repositories. I mean, this is just basic hygiene 101 kind of stuff, but common mistakes in this environment now exposes, you know, lots of data records in this particular case. 
Yeah, and that those two things uh, for the human accounts, throwing on that multi-factor of some sort. And there's another point too that uh, this researcher made is that um, also had found repositories that had simply been abandoned rather than deleted. So there's also um, we can call it you know uh, one of our favorite phrases perhaps tech debt lying around creating a liability. So tech debt is also maybe security liability if we're looking for some additional synonyms there. Um, but I think, too, there's also to um, pull on yet another of John's favorite topics, uh, there were some more bugs patched, patched in Azure Sphere. And this is uh, Microsoft's basically their IoT in the cloud platform. And um, it, these were pretty interesting because they're basically poking around at Linux kernel space and um, manipulating memory. And uh, in, in one case, showing how they could t change um, what was intended to be read-only memory and turn it into writable memory, which basically then writable memory gives you command execution. Um, and basically, here's your shell code that you want to execute. Go forth and conquer the, the IoT uh, and create your botnet. So these are pretty interesting. And again, pretty good write-ups um, from the researchers from, uh, I think, Cisco Talus were the ones that uh, found these in particular. Yeah, I saw this this morning. This is interesting. Um, I never got to bang on this as hard as these guys did. So a um, little, well, really surprised because the team who did this stuff, it seemed like they did such a great job. What's really sort of confused me about this is um, it sounds like Microsoft didn't want to issue CVEs. Um, I, I don't see a good reason why yet. That doesn't sound like Microsoft. Um, so I'm, I'm a little confused on, on that little technicality. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's, it's a good example, right? It, it's, again, we, we think we know how to do this stuff right. And they've, they've, done, they've gone through a lot of the right process and they've designed it properly, but it looks like implementation flaws. Um, so a good read. Uh, and, you know, it's, you've got not one, but four of these things to go through um, on all relatively recent versions of, uh, of, of the software, of the kernel. Um, but yeah, it's, I don't know, a little, it, this is still a very, a very new, very young platform. I think hardware's just been out about, what, a year? Uh, but still, um, I think, I still think it's, it's, it's my preferred, if, if someone will ask me how to do IoT, right, I think this is still it. Um, and they'll find these six along the way, so hopefully it'll be a sign of um, further improvements. The, the one thing yeah. I didn't realize Microsoft did here was built their own custom Linux-based operating system. Why yeah. not just grab one of the ones that have already been through a lot of this validation? Why create your own custom Linux uh, OS at this point, right? It just That seemed kind of weird to me in this whole you know, Azure Sphere uh, architecture. So it's super it, minimal. It's really just a kernel. It's not really an operating system, mm. um, so that's probably part of it. Uh, it and it's it's you know it's for their own silicon, um, so it, it's probably some reasons around stuff like that. Yeah, I think two things around that are one is, is, as John just mentioned, they have their own, you know, system on chip for a lot of capabilities. So I think part of that is they need a lot of kernel customization. And I also linked in the show notes, they have, um, I think we talked about this in the past, their 19 cybersecurity best practices. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they highlighted too is to eliminate the concept of users on IoT devices, meaning like, you know, basically root or non-root users and just get, it's basically just the device. And they actually say in in that document that 
um, following this particular um, best practice actually took a lot of tweaking in the kernel so that the rest of the, the POSIX capabilities uh, could understand that, oh, we don't actually have the, uh, we, we don't actually have users to, to rely on. And so I think that's for those two reasons that those were at least two influences in terms of them going down their own path in um, designing a good hardened kernel for IoT. Yeah, but it, but I think the key point here is they had to make a bunch of customizations. And when you do that, you potentially mm -hmm. introduce vulnerabilities. Here they are, yeah. right? So now you're going to have to put part of this platform, I think, through a lot of uh, regression and, and security research to say, based on those customizations, did I open up other potential kernel bugs here that I didn't intend to because I had to create this my own custom kernel? That's a great point, and it really speaks to: Are they making customizations for convenience, um, or are they, you know, good security-minded, and are they actually ultimately reducing attack surface? Um, because just as we've seen here with the Azure Sphere, uh, we'll see the same thing in, in Chrome. Chrome has had, you know, significant RCEs and uh, in, in memory corruption uh, every single month this year, I think, or just about. Um, but obviously, they're able to respond quickly and react quickly, and they have a good architecture. That that reduces the potential impact. So I think here to sort of build that parallel, I, I, I want to say that, that Microsoft is on this path as well, because another thing they also uh, that, that stands out to me in this uh, cybersecurity best practices, they also mention not parsing certificates in the trusted computing base, basically in the in the, the good signed root of trust for their, their application. And they make a really good case because certificate parsing for one based on X509 and ASN.1, notorious bugs from, you know, from at least two, if not three decades of security bugs have been in there. And you probably don't want to um, uh, tie yourself so closely to that type of certificate within the, the TCB. So I think those are some aspects I would point to that they're on the right path to reducing attack service, or at least they know they should be. Um, but I guess we do have to keep watching to see how much the implementation matches the design and intent. Um, th there is also then, speaking of going uh, back to GitHub in this case, uh, GitHub was also in, in the news, just they, they post on their engineering blog, but I wanted to pull this from a, a security perspective, just talking about how they were upgrading to Ruby 2.7. And um, I know poor Paul has been um, struggling or perhaps wrangling or, or whatever the, the good terms in, wrestling. Uh, we need Paul's wrestling name now uh, with getting, I think, Python updated. But he's not alone. GitHub here isn't alone, just trying to update um, to the latest supported version of Ruby. And I, what just stood out to me is they gave some uh, a good description of how they went about doing it, basically saying, we're going to have a parallel path for 2.6 and 2.7 going to roll out slowly, watch to see what happens, do bad things happen, um, so we can roll back safely and then just say, cool, now we've at least set up our code so we have a path forward and we're not stuck on this uh, older version of Ruby as it goes out of to unsupported or into just a pure, not even a, you know, a, a dormant maintenance phase, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, Paul made a ton of progress from uh, Python 2.7 to 3, uh, and it's, it's actually running in our staging environment now. It, it was... It was surprisingly easier than he thought it would be. I mean, there were a couple things, right? The, the way certain things were changed in, in Python 3. But we've got a parallel path as well because now we've got, you know, Python 3 running 
in our staging environment. And as long as that continues to smooth, go smoothly, I mean, we'll just push it. Um, but yeah, there's other enhancements in there too, but yeah, he's made a lot of progress, but it's easier for us. I mean, there's how many people that log into our system compared to GitHub, right? I mean, you're talking (laughs) a massive system here that a lot of people log into. You don't want stuff to break. Yeah, you absolutely don't want stuff to break. And this also did make me think that you don't want stuff to break. And you also want to know when are these languages or when are you know, the language versions, the point versions or the frameworks going to go into become deprecated or go into just a security maintenance phase. And um, Ruby has pretty good documentation. Python actually has really good documentation about their support. Um, but I think this was more of just I was mentally thinking what would be a nice call to action is that what would be a standard way or or of just so DevOps teams can track, you know, when is my, you know, when is this version of Go going to go out of support? And of course, we have seen a lot of the, the vendors we've talked to, a lot of the open source tools, they do try to keep track of these things in that terms of that, that software composition analysis. You you walked right into where I was thinking um, on the Go stuff. And there was a blog post, I ran into this last week, I wish I put it into the show notes, but I didn't. Um, and it was, it, it was someone ranting about the, the, the Go ecosystem, um, but there was a part in there which was really interesting because, you know, so for, I think we've talked about it, but for those who don't know, um, the uh, the frame of mind of the Go community is developers of both the language and the um, uh, libraries uh, should, um, latest is always, and they've just started adding versioning in like really the last year, but, um, the state of language is the latest version is whatever latest and greatest features they have. Um, they are very open to break backwards compatibility, break the contract, uh, and they expect consumers of their components to uh, um, have the burden of keeping the software up to date with the latest. Um, once again, at Laird Insight, Matt heard me cursing many times over this when we go and, you know, just go to bump a library to bring in one feature and all of a sudden our, our build would break. Um, but it turns out the reason why is what's interesting, and it sort of to bring it back to, to the Rubies um, and someone large like GitHub trying to do this this change. I guess Google internally has, um, like you know, I think it's sort of known most of their source code is in a single repo, uh, but they've also they've got these utilities they've written that allow them to um, model a change in their software. So if they go to change a API or a contract, they can see all the places it's going to change and, and automatically change all those things um, at the same time. Uh, so that once you have a tool like that, that makes it very powerful for you um, internally inside your organization since you've written the, the language and the libraries, right? Uh, for those on the outside who don't have that type of thing and, and you know, like I was saying, we go and to bump to get a feature or to fix a bug and we've suddenly broken things, that's where it becomes a problem. But it sort of made that become a little more um, understanding to me in, in the Go thing. And like I said, they've started doing versioning, so they've gotten a little better at this. Um, they've gone through what? Vendoring and then versioning and then Gover, and it, it's still sort of changing, I think. But... Um, the one thing which is interesting to bring it back to the the, the um, GitHub piece, when I looked through this, I was expecting them to say they were using uh, feature toggles for doing that mm-hmm. migration, and I didn't see that in there. So I thought that was sort of um, interesting. Yeah, I think they were rolling out to more of more of a canary approach, and um, mm-hmm. as opposed to, to feature toggling. Um, but still, you know, a good observation and a good point to say, uh, you know, that'd be one of the questions to throw back to the DevOps team. 
do you ha even have a capability to run two parallel versions um, or be able to do this type of testing? Because if you don't, um, on the one hand, just feature toggles, et cetera, are just great for the product itself, just feature, as I say, customer-facing uh, features, as I'm trying to struggle for words here, but also features for just testing uh, new deployments, new versions, new libraries, et cetera. So it's a lot safer to roll back. And that gives you, again, go into that concept a little bit we were talking in the first segment, um, call it resiliency or availability so that, that the application is just more robust against failure. I think that also is a kind of a way to bring us into another article that was um, talking about did, did your did your DevOps strategy fail, and this is again a bit bit of a high level um, uh, article, but it's it's making a, a couple good points. One is just saying. Have someone look at why, if you're trying to move into this concept of DevOps, for example, you're trying to uh, combine it with a point version for your language upgrade or adopt something that gives you, enables you to you know, run languages in parallel. Um, if you failed, why? And this does go to that idea of that sort of blameless postmortem. But basically it's saying, build that feedback loop. And um, the other point that stood out to me is that, again, pretty generic, pretty fundamental, but saying it's a collaboration. So if you call it DevOps or DevSecOps, it's security, developers, operations, basically figuring out who's responsible for what within the application and making sure that the, res that the responsibilities are aligned with incentives, as well as the tooling or processes in order to support that more effectively. Yeah, this article ties in a little bit to the, the CISO article that you list after this is because yeah. let's say your DevOps process failed. Where did it fail? Is this now an opportunity to collaborate with security and start looking at ways to integrate those other pieces in, right? I think a restart or a failure when it forces you to kind of do a retrospective and kind of look at your process and say, all right, we got to fix this. But while we're fixing it, maybe we can improve it at the same time and leverage security and some of these other uh, groups to to really kind of fine tune the process and enhance it as we're fixing it. Uh, and I think that's the collaboration that needs to continue, Mike, in, in the industry, right? When I talk to a lot of analysts and vendors, I mean, this is a common theme that people are starting to realize that there is a, a collaboration effort here between development, DevOps, and the security teams over time. And that then also kind of begs the question, well, what's going to happen to the CISO role, right? Is AppSec going to stay under the CISO? Does the CISO stay in an operational role? These are all questions I raised years ago. And, and I think they're valid because if DevSecOps is the future, then a lot of the security operational components goes to that team. And maybe it's not a dedicated CISO role anymore. Or if it is, it's in a different capacity. It's not in an operational capacity. Maybe it's more in a governance or awareness or security champions uh, initiative versus uh, what used to be the operation side. Yeah, that's a great point. It's that CISO for engineering to build the tools or CISO for governance as the DevOps, as the, the traditional CTO structure or the product engineering team is building those tools. And that's what the, this CISO article, what success looks like. There's a lot of AppSec in there that stood out to me because on the two things. One was that, um, what, what was the, the, the quote from it? That this starts with in the business investing the time and understanding the security requirements and then agreeing 
agreeing upon business risks tolerance. Right there speaks to governance, just, just as you were saying. And that also is very much just threat modeling, as John mentioned right at the beginning of the segment. What are we wor really worried about and what should we be worried about? And the risk tolerance part comes in to say, okay, we're worried, but what do we, how much do we need to invest? Can we just, do we need to be aware of that or do we need to invest something to bring that risk down? And that's the other part of this article that stood out to me in that sense of threat modeling is saying, if the board or is just saying, oh, hey, we read in the news, this hack happened or this other hack happened. How is that going to happen? Is, is that going to happen to us? Go protect us from that. That's potentially a little too myopic because you're kind of forgetting that there's a lot of really fundamental things that need to be done in terms of making sure your credentials aren't hard coded into your code and being put onto GitHub, making sure you can just do basic inventory of your cloud assets. And then just as we were talking with Mark in the first segment, what kind of visibility do you have in your environment? So I think, and those parts, I think those are the questions I'm asking that go towards more perhaps that engineering um, oriented CISO. Yeah, exactly yeah, this right. It's such a hard role. Um, I mean, I, I don't know if all engineers, I know we have a, a mixture in our audience. I don't know if all engineers get it. A CISO is sort of a, it's almost more political role. It's, it's definitely more political role. Uh, and, I, you know, when I saw the headline in, in, in the show notes, my first joke was going to be, you know, successes if they last more than two years. And, and they covered it in the first <laughs> paragraph, right? Um, it's the, the CISO in a company, they're that person who has to try and keep everyone happy, right? They have to, they, they report either to a CEO or to a board. They have to, you know, take all the wishes, I'd say, from from that group of folks and then somehow figure out how do we how do we implement that and apply it to the rest of the organization? What's our tactics like for the next, um, our both strategies and tactics for the next year or two? Um, about, you know, obviously not want to be on the front page of the New York Times or worrying about the, the latest shiny marketing uh, vulnerability, but also making sure that the bases are covered. Um, it, it's, it, it's a, I sort of want to say a thankless role, you know, it's especially now that in the US, I think it's a uh, federal level, right? We have, um, there's potential for the C-level person who is responsible for privacy and security mm -hmm. to have legal, um, and, you know, I think that's your next article, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, to have uh, potential legal lawsuits personally at them. So it's um, it, it's, it's a tough role to, to fill in, um, to juggle all these requirements. Yeah, and that's why I pull these three articles that, you know, did your DevOps fail? Let's figure out why. What does CISO success look like? And then perhaps that cautionary tale of um, this is uh, Joe Sullivan and Uber and um, perhaps a misuse, I will say uh, most politely, of, of a bug bounty program. Because um, we've talked about bug bounty and it has a very, it does have a very important place within AppSec. If you're mature enough to have hopefully set up and cleaned out a lot of the bugs, bring in that external bug bounty, have a good vulnerability disclosure program as well, just in general, which is different from bug bounty. But don't necessarily expose yourself to criminal liability um, by basically using bug bounty to essentially the claims here is basically paying off a ransom here or here or or to or basically I think more importantly it's the the cover up saying that um, oh, we don't have to report this breach because it was actually reported through our bug bounty program and look here's the NDA that was signed and the payments that were made. Yeah, this is interesting from a legal perspective, and I think all CISOs should take notice, okay? 
they used the bug bounty program to basically pay a ransom because they didn't want to have to do a breach notification to the government because of the 2014 incident. And this happened in 2016. So they were trying to get out of the feds, um, kind of microscope on another breach of Uber data in this particular case, used a bug bounty program to pay this ransom basically. And now he's going to get in trouble criminally, I think at the end of the day, I mean, this is the kind of potential situation as a CISO, you don't want to be in. And that's not what these programs were designed for, but it was used in a, a malicious way. Absolutely. And there was um, there, there's also the aspect of legal is probably or at least it should be uh, pulled into any type of you know important forensic investigation. And uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember what the, what it was, but there was a um, article earlier this summer about whether that, that was looking at potentially that that legal um, I, I just lost my term of art here, uh, proprietary and confidential, but the privilege, that the legal privilege right. between the, the legal team and forensics um, may not protect you from discovery or from investigations um, into how a breach happened. Um, so quite interesting, too, that, that maybe that, as John said, maybe the CISO role is becoming as much political and legal as it is on that governance side, as opposed to just purely in engineering so that we can have a, a good law so we can reconstruct whether or not our data that was leaked into an S3 bucket was accessed, but figure out, oh, what do we now need to do in terms of breach notifications at the federal as well as the state level, since there's almost, I think, 50 different breach notification types of um, uh, rules to follow. So quite a complex environment that very directly also ties to application security, because this is where the, those most of the time those breaches are coming from. Yeah. Yep, it's becoming a scape, scapegoat position and almost in some places, so just <laughs> beware. <laughs> <laughs> beware, but do listen to Application Security Weekly as well as all the other Security Weekly um, uh, shows to get good insights on how you can best be a CISO and last more than two years of the job. But we'll keep our fingers crossed for you. <laughs> I want to say thanks for Matt and John for joining me once again to go through the news. Thanks for everyone listening and chatting with us in the Discord. Make sure to sign up for a mailing list. Come join us in Discord. We are going to um, take a break, I believe, next week, but we will see you next time on Application Security Weekly.